You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's episode, Bullies. It was one of those hot summer days, the kind of day when the black gum on the sidewalk gets gooey, and when you step in it, you're shocked by the long-dead smell of spearmint. It is in this kind of heat that things are revealed to you, things that you do not necessarily want to know, like what the guy beside you on the bus smells like, or just how close an armpit stain can come to one's waist. He was ten years old that summer of the heat wave. He sat on the edge of the sidewalk sharpening a popsicle stick against the road. The boy had friends, but enjoyed his time alone. He did not always need to be doing something. Sometimes he enjoyed a good sit, and in the heat, a good sit seemed particularly wise. As he sat there, he could see his younger sister across the street, playing with her friend Helen on the front lawn of Helen's house. His sister was a strange girl who invented odd games for her friends. Her games involved invisible cars and pillowcase capes. They involved large round sunglasses and talking in high-pitched voices. In her games, she was always a princess. When you played with her, you could be a teacher or a doctor or even a puppy. The only thing you could not be was a princess, because she was a princess, and there was only room for one. He sat there, sharpening his stick and watching his sister and Helen, thinking pretty much of nothing. Maybe just doing an inventory in his head of how many days left of summer he had. Each one was precious and unique. Even if it was hotter than hell, he was not about to bow out. No, he was going to suck it up, because when September came around, he wanted plenty of good memories. Sharpening stick memories. Memories to keep him warm during the cold Canadian winter months because that's the kind of kid he was. He was a forward-looking kid. And so he sat watching his sister and Helen. He would learn later that she had just asked Helen for a glass of water. He saw his sister standing there, waiting. Helen approached with a glass of water, and just as she was about to hand it to her, Helen's brother... A large, swarthy lad named Yorgo took the glass of water out of her hand and then spilt it over the sister's head. The boy watched the water pour down over his sister's long blonde hair. The water wavered in the heat. The water looked like a mirage. He had never seen anyone pour a glass of water over anyone's head before. He wasn't sure if it was possible, that he was seeing right. He lifted himself from the sidewalk and slowly started walking over to them. As he walked across the street, he thought, If Yorgo has poured a glass of water over my sister's head, then I will have to do something. He was not sure what he would do. He slowed down his pace. He moved along, walking as slowly as he could, his legs sweaty and wet in his jeans. As he got closer, he saw that, yes, Yorgo had indeed poured a glass of water over his sister's head. He was approaching the sidewalk in front of their house, 
and he had absolutely no idea what he was going to do. All he knew was that he was going to have to do something. You don't just let someone pour a glass of water over your sister's head, he thought. He walked up to Yorgo, who was holding an empty water glass, and lifted up his dukes. This was his one big fight move, lifting up his dukes. He had probably learnt it from a cartoon. He stood there, in front of Yorgo, and Yorgo raised his dukes too. He looked at Yorgo, and Yorgo looked at him. They stood there, under the cruel late July sun, looking at each other, each waiting for the other to make the first move. He stared Yorgo right in the eye, the way his father had taught him to do if ever he was in a fight. Hold your ground, his father said. Stare him dead in the eye. If you look at him like you mean it, he'll buckle all right. So that's what he did. Staring a man down came natural to him. He stared hard and determined. He imagined red laser beams streaming out of his eyes. He was really getting into the whole thing feeling like he had a handle on the whole fight game, when suddenly he felt Yorgo's fist land square onto his nose. The boy felt as though he had just slammed nose first into a brick wall, a wall that came from out of nowhere. He fell to the ground and started to cry. He had never been punched in the face before. The pain was fierce and unfair. It was like his whole face had become a sunflower full of blood and tiny bones that was painfully blossoming and nothing could stop it. Yorgo had a father who had prepared him for fights, too, a man who worked in a garage fixing carburetors and slamming hoods, a man who had taught Yorgo to always hit first and ask questions later. The boy looked up at Yorgo, clutching his nose. He wondered what you did or said in such a situation, now that everything was over. It was not something his father had prepared him for. Did you lie on the ground until nightfall? Until someone older, someone who knew about these kinds of things, came to pick you up? Did you get up yourself and keep staring, risking another punch even more excruciating than the first? Did you go back to the sidewalk and sit? Did life just go on? The boy sat there, and Yorgo stood over him, the two of them wondering what in God's name you were supposed to do next.
the beginning of seventh grade, my dad wanted me to play football. He'd played football at the same school when he was that age. And um, I really wasn't very excited about it, but I did it because my dad wanted me to. And um, that's kind of when everything started. And it was really this one guy who's kind of the ringleader of the whole thing. And, um, you know, I always knew even then that it was, that had he not been there, um, all the other guys probably would have left me alone. But um, he was really the fuel behind it, you know. Um, his name was Rob. But, um, yeah, he was just like this kind of little weaselly, loudmouth guy, like red hair and um, kind of good looking, but he wasn't like very popular. I mean, he was good in football and probably admired for that. Um, so it kind of started in football practice and, um, like I always just got hit extra hard and, or, um, he would do this thing where he would, um, step on my foot and then try to push me over the other way. And I actually still feel some pain in my knee from that once in a while. Um, a couple of times they put signs on my locker. I got food thrown at me in the cafeteria. You know, got things thrown at me walking down the street. It was a pretty constant barrage, you know, every time I saw them, every time I came around the corner and they were there. I mean, there were times in, you know, eighth and ninth grade that I went home crying. I guess most of the guys in the school were, um, you know, kind of a little more athletic and more... Um, you know, everybody was kind of into hunting and sports and fishing and things like that. And I was on the football team, but um, I wasn't really very good at football. I kind of stayed stayed on the team and, you know, rejoined the team every year just to kind of make my dad happy. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember one time specifically when I was walking down the street to the main street of town to... Um, my dad's office and Rob and I think he was with one or two other people they were about half a block behind me on the other side of the street just yelling faggot 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 you know non-stop and um, you know as I was getting close to my dad's office I didn't want my dad to hear anybody calling me that did your dad understand like what you were up against um I, you know I never really talked to my dad about it too much mm-hmm. um I, I mean, I always kind of actually suspected that my dad in high school might have been a little more like them, too. So it was a Friday night, and it was a, bas- a home basketball game. I was at the school with a couple of my friends watching the game. I think it was you know, probably like halfway through the game and um, somebody came in and said that Rob had shot himself at home. And um, he was actually on the on the telephone with his girlfriend at the time and she heard the she heard the gun. She heard the shot and she hung up the phone hung up her phone and called nine one one and volunteer ambulance had gone to his house and he had locked all the doors and by the time they got in, had gotten into the house he'd bled to death.
the moment when the the news reached you, your 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 very first feeling. Um, relief. I mean, that sounds horrible because I wasn't glad that he was dead, but at the same time, it felt you know I knew things were going to be better. Did um, did did you attend his funeral? Yeah, I did go to his funeral. I remember sitting there, like, kind of wondering if I should try to muster up some tears or something. I mean, everybody else was, everybody else was, you know, crying. His family was hysterical. All of his friends were crying. All of the girls were, you know, a mess. And I remember sitting there, like, feeling like, like I should be kind of sad that this, you know, that this person was dead. But, but not. You know, not feeling sad at all. I remember actually the football coach talking about what a great guy he was, and um, you know, just a lot of things that people say about people at funerals um, that may not necessarily be the case. I mean, he wasn't really—he wasn't a good guy, you know. And, you know, it wasn't like I was the only one that he was harassing. Mm-hmm. There were other people, too. And um, I don't know. In a, in a way, I feel like maybe some of those other guys that were even actually his friends, I mean, certainly weren't happy that he was dead, but maybe really, maybe felt... I mean, I mean, none of them ever bothered me again. I mean, what was it? Was it that, like, was it instantaneous? Was it that immediate, like, after he had died? Yes, it was instantaneous. I mean, he died on a Friday. I think the funeral was, like, Monday or Tuesday. And when classes kind of were back to normal, it was it was all over. And I never had any trouble from those guys again, from any of them. I mean, I used to kind of take back streets and kind of back routes to get places or to go downtown to pick up my lunch or um, kind of go the back way home and kind of felt strange to just walk down the street or walk, you know, walk to my house and not have to worry about getting hit in the back of the head with something. So, uh, John, you you consider yourself uh, somewhat of an expert at at winning at winning fights. Right? Uh, I'm ex- yes, I'm an expert at many things, and that's certainly the one that the people are very interested in. And and this is any type of fight, or mainly fist fights? Oh no, um, whether it's a fist fight uh, or just a 
test of wills or um, psychic combat. I'm basically uh, unbeatable. Uh huh. And so you've never lost? Uh, no, I've been in a lot of um, fights and uh, several feuds and two what I would call major rivalries, one minor rivalry, an imbroglio or two, and um, I've never lost, and people are naturally curious about this, and so I'm asked to discuss it at um, public speaking engagements and that sort of thing. It's hard to believe because, you know, one of the things that sort of, uh, that, that we're always told that to kind of characterizes us as human beings is that we're prone to um, to, to losing occasionally, you know? Y- yes, there is something... Uh, disturbing about my inability to lose. And in some ways, it is a curse. Um, I realize that it is somewhat scary. And, uh, of course, you know, loss tempers us and makes us more human. And I am somehow less human as a result of this. Of course, it's convenient. Mm -hmm. So, to paraphrase... um, an acquaintance of mine who overheard this said once in a schoolyard, fighting never proved anything except who's better. But but it's funny because for, for one such as yourself who's always, always won and, and never has tasted uh, loss, you, you, there's a kind of sadness that you... Um, that you kind of carry around? Oh, certainly. Certainly. You know, it would be nice to have experienced that. I mean, I have lost on purpose in order to spare people's feelings, say, at a game of Scrabble. I'm a, I try to be a good friend, but I think we all know that it's a hollow gesture. Don't you wish that someone would just, like, allow you to lose? Like, in the same way that you've allowed people to win? Yes, but who, who, who would I... I don't know. How did you How did you get so good at winning? I, I established um, a system. Uh huh. And I follow it. And can you can you share with uh, Oh yeah. Can, can, can you share with me the uh, the oh, system? Um, it is three steps. Mm-hmm. The most important thing when you're in any sort of conflict, you know, is to make eye contact. Even when you're not in the same room with your adversary, you should always keep eye contact. Right now we're talking, of course, by telephone, but I think you can feel the weight of my gaze on you. I I think I can. You see, if you break eye contact, it's perceived on some instinctive level as a sign of weakness. So you should always make eye contact. And once you've made eye contact and held it for, say, 25 minutes, you should go ahead and raise one eyebrow. That's very intimidating. Uh Uh-huh. And then the second part of my system for winning is you should go ahead and use uh, henchmen. Uh, I know everyone wants to fight their own battles, but nowadays, you know, it's simply unnecessary, and it actually is sort of frowned upon, especially when there are so many skilled henchmen who are out of work. 
Mm-hmm. And then the third part, of course, is that you have to run a lot of attack ads. Like, like, uh, like, like the kind, like, like presidential ad- attack ads. Yes, negative attack ads on television, on radio, on the internet. Now, uh huh. You need to attack the other person's character. And you've done this, of course. Look, it's not pretty, you know, and no one likes to go negative, but it's an important part of winning. And you know, at least I'm owning up to it. I'm not saying that it's. You know these third-party people. It's me. I'm doing it. I'm attacking the other person. The record shows. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe you should be wary of it. So in a sense, I'm doing a public service. Can, can you offer an example of of some of these attack ads that you've employed? Well, here, here's an example. Okay. I went to Montreal, your city, mm-hmm. Montreal. And I asked my friend, Jonathan Colton, who normally is not my enemy, to do a favor for me. Mm -hmm. And he didn't perform. So he became my enemy. And uh, I ran five or six ads sort of on on this issue. They're issue-based and Uh character-based. I can give you an example of one of those. Yes, please. My name is John Hodgman. And I approved this message. Borderline irresponsible. That's what friends of John Hodgman are saying about Jonathan Colton. Last weekend, Jonathan Colton agreed to look in on John Hodgman's cats when he was in Montreal. Fact is, he didn't, even though the record shows that Colton has his own cat, so he obviously knows how to take care of one. Something just doesn't add up. Cat out of the bag, Mr. Colton? John Hodgman is a better choice. When John Hodgman found a stray cat on 105th Street, he worked tirelessly to find it a home. He even took it to the vet for a checkup. Fact is, John Hodgman is working hard for cats, all cats, not just the ones he owns. Borderline irresponsible. Doesn't add up. Cat out of the bag. Does Jonathan Colton sound like someone you want to cat sit for you? Henrietta Pussycat says, meow, 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 no way, meow, meow. So, uh, so a- after something like that runs, then I mean, he's not he's not going to get any more cat sitting work. Let's just say I get a bounce in the polls and he goes down. But you know, I I, I must say, like I, I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to start any, um, you know, I don't I don't want to get into any tiff with you. Or you, you don't want to get into a fight with me. No, no, I absolutely don't. Uh, I want to be very clear about that, but I, 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 maybe I would be overly, or I am just overly concerned with peop, with how people would feel, you know, hear, hearing these ads on the radio. Oh, you can't think that way. Yeah. I, I'm, am I talking like a loser? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Another fight that I did not pick was when I had to live in a different city here in the United States. This is in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, I had to leave New Haven for personal reasons for a period of time. And I had an outstanding lease in my apartment, so I wanted to sublet it to someone. And this person did not pay the rent, and I had to take him to small claims court. So I, I ran an ad. What's going on with Felipe Oliveira? 
When John Hodgman needed a subletter for his apartment, Oliveira said he was the man for the job. But his resume tells a different story. Turns out, Oliveira was not just a local waiter, but also a Portuguese hypnotist. Say what? And it turns out, Felipe Oliveira also goes by the name Phil Moore. Run that by me again. What Oliveira doesn't want you to know is that when he skipped out on $1,200 worth of bank rent, Hodgman's landlord described Oliveira as a deadbeat and said that Oliveira had been caught out of the window on two separate occasions. Cat out of the bag, Mr. Oliveira? John Hodgman is a better choice. He has never practiced hypnosis, never used an alias, and has only out of a window once. Deadbeat. Hypnotist. Grant John Hodgman a summary judgment against Mr. Oliveira and let him move on with his life. After all, it's time to rebuild, not out a window. That was that was uh, paid for by the apartment subletters for Truth About Hypnotists, which is me, right? My organization. And and so and 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 this worked. Well, I did get the summary judgment. Uh huh. I did win in a court of law, um, but in the end, I ended up having to pay the rent, and I did not get my money back. Mm, really? No. So, what do you call that? That would be, that would be a, a tie. Well, how's that a tie? That's not that's not winning. Did I lose? Could this be it? I suppose it is. But this is the first moment that you actually have thought about it in the language of loss. Like I, I didn't even I hesitated to say that you lost. I said that you didn't win. Right. But um, in fact, I mean, it's sort of like I guess one could say that you did lose. And I mean, how does I don't know how do you, how does that feel? Well, it feels much better than uh, than I might have thought. Do you want to take a moment together to uh, to, to 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 savor the feeling of loss? No, I'm going to say that you know this is still an ongoing issue. Uh huh. I may yet prevail.
The voices you heard on Wiretap today were Shane Gabier and John Hodgman. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Sarah Gilbert and Carolyn Warren. Our email address is wiretap at cbc.ca or visit the website cbc.ca slash wiretap. Next Saturday on the show, After the World This Weekend, Modern Language.